This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Serving Seattle's book lovers for more than 47 years with one of the finest collections of used books in the Pacific Northwest. Mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount today. Our sponsor is Horizon Books and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Hey, team. Welcome back to the week. It's Monday, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I was, I was at a Persian wedding this weekend, and... One of the speakers mentioned that in Iran, the poets are more famous and get bigger monuments than the politicians. That struck me, I guess, as a poet and as an organizer of weekly poetry events. And I've generally kept that life aside from this one. This is largely civics. But one of the things that I think that speaker's comment spoke to me was that poets are such a part of civic life and of national life. And people who speak truth to power, people who speak truth period, are pretty crucial to any culture. I'd been doing some interviews, short sit-downs with some of my colleagues in the spoken word poetry community. Not sure when I was going to throw them in, if I was going to throw them in at all. But then after this weekend, when I heard that, I got to thinking, you know, I think it's high time. And there's some good events coming up. Rain City Poetry Slam is going to have its Grand Slam championship on April 25th. I'm sure I'll mention that a few other times between now and then. And it just seemed about right. So we got a couple great guests on here today. Imani Sims, longtime poet, host, MC, performing artist, eminence grease of this community without really being all that grease. She's, she's pretty eminence, frankly. Ben Israel, last year's reigning Grand Slam champion. Real mischievous, real smart, knows how to knows his way around a joke. Fabulous poet. And Chelsea Brown, a young up-and-coming poet who also works in social services and has a lot to say about youth care. All three are absolutely fantastic. Let's just jump in. It's a long one. Hey, thanks for coming in. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm all for the, the fun things and talking shit on the radio. Well, oh, you just said that because I told you you could curse. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, how can I get the word shit in there right away? <laughs> right away. Yeah, I have been recorded saying lots of unnecessary things on the air, so. But you have a reputation yeah. for saying very necessary things on the air, too. Yeah. So you were born here? Yes. Not in this bookstore, but you were born in Seattle. <laughs> yes, not in Horizon Books, but actually in Seattle, Washington. Child of the 80s. Yeah. And you've like been here pretty much ever since, right? You, uh, yeah. Some trips here and there, some like little stints here and there, right? Yeah, but, I like let you do my undergrad work on the East Coast. And oh, you I, did? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then I came to, back to do my graduate work. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's been a pretty solid, I've been here for a solid 10 years. Yeah, plus childhood and all that. Yeah. And you, you're like Capitol Hill all the way, all day, right? Yeah, I was born in the CD. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, Capitol Hill CD, yeah. Yeah. I was born in the Central District uh, and lived there most of my life until my mom like got married and moved and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Columbia City. Yeah. No, I moved to Montlake first, which was a really weird neighborhood to live in. Yo, Montlake is like everybody's weird intermission period. So weird. 
everyone I know is like, yeah, I was living. I have a good friend. She's like a, a, a mom, you know, everything. Yeah. But she was like, I was like 32. I had no boyfriend. I just, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I just like, Motley. <laughs> For like two years, yeah. yeah. That's like what everybody does. It is. Um, it's a really cute neighborhood, oh, right? Yeah. But it's like mostly people who have lived there, their whole adult lives and raised children there. Right. There's like some retired folks. Right. And there's like some elementary schools. And it's just a weird offset neighborhood. You have between. to be cool with water damage. Yeah. yeah right. And it's moldy and kind of like, yeah, it's just a weird... Yeah. It's a weird neighborhood. So your folks, they're Seattleites too, like born and raised? Or? Yes. Yeah. So you have um, you have roots here. Yeah. Yeah. My grandparents, uh, both of my grandfathers were in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they moved here to do military service work. My dad was a military brat for a long time, born in Germany and lived oh, shit. there for okay. a while. Yeah. And then here. Do you know I studied in Germany? Oh my God, really? Yeah. Ich war in Deutschland. <laughs> yeah, that's like a weird that's thing. so random. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? Everybody's like, what? <laughs> Vanna, what? <laughs> what? Um, yeah, so anyway, so, all right, so they, you're just like family mahogany roots, like yeah. all the way down. Yeah. Okay. We've all been here. So my family came from like Oklahoma, Cincinnati. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephanie Stokes Oliver. She's a, uh, an essayist and, a, and oh, cool. a, she's Seattle native born and raised as well. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of that, like African-Americans that came up from the either the South or the lower Midwest during like mid-level Jim Crow, mm-hmm. like when there was no like end in sight yet. And yep. they all came up like here. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, I mean, I'm curious what you think about this. It's not like Seattle is necessarily a bastion of like enlightenment, but at least it was a place where you could kind of put your head down and not necessarily worry about yeah, Seattle's very passive about like being brown in the area, right? It's mm-hmm. very like this is the line. If you're brown, don't cross this yeah, line, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and it's still very much like that. It's rare to see brown people living and thriving in like Ballard, Fremont area because mm-hmm. there was a line there for a really long time. And yeah. then you get up into like Linwood, Everett. There are brown people up there because there are lots of like immigrant families that yeah. get moved all the yeah. way up into bumfuck nowhere because there's land and housing. I, I've noticed that too. And and if you think about, so one of the main things that we're really focusing on in the show is like the city is changing. Yeah. Yeah. You can't stop a wave, nope. but you can ride it. And, and I'm interested <laughs> in the people who are trying to. One of the things is this really city has always been changing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you look at the, when they built the highway, mm-hmm. look at where they built it mm. and the communities that were directly adjacent to the highway and Hello. how that impacted people of color, queer communities, indigenous communities, right right through the center of the city, which is bad urban design, by the way. Why would you do like, that? Like, why would you? Why? It changes the whole nature of what a city is. But, right. but it also had this, you know, and you don't even need to have a conspiracy theory. It doesn't have to. Maybe it wasn't even intentional, yeah. but it was thoughtless, and that's because those voices weren't at yeah. the table right. when, when the decision was being made. to put this highway in yep. the middle of yep. a city. Yeah. So is that where they grew up, CD, your, your folks? Uh, actually, my dad grew up in the South End, closer oh, okay. to like uh, Othello, Graham Hill area. Oh, gotcha. So yeah, but my mom, yeah, grew up in the Central District, um, Madrona area most of her life, and then my grandparents moved to like Yesler-ish, like heart of the CD. Yep. And so your parents, sounds like they split up though when you were growing up. Oh, they were never together randomly. oh okay yeah. okay neither I, were mine they, yeah right yeah. <laughs> like it's a weird thing when everyone's like so your parents got divorced i was like they were actually never really together yeah there were just children involved yeah um, yeah got you yeah it's a weird it's it's a weird family but you're but everyone was around and involved and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah totally yeah. i knew both sides of my family growing up i only have one living grandparent now but mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i hung out with my grandparents all the time yeah so. oh what a treasure right so my grand grandpa just passed away oh, about man. a month ago and he's where i get my like bullshit sense of humor from <laughs> he fe- he met michelle my fiance uh-huh. uh not too long ago because uh-huh. they're back east in new york and 
uh, he's bedridden. He was bedridden. And oh, uh, no. I said, Grandpa, I want you to meet my fiance. And he says, but does she have money, though? <laughs> he's like speaking through like a tube and he can't help but crack jokes, right? Oh, so, yeah, it's important to have that. And that's cool. I love yeah. when people grew up here yeah. because you have a really great perspective on yeah. uh you know, again, the changes that are happening. Yeah, and it definitely doesn't look like my city anymore, which is so strange to be like on Capitol Hill and like the rainbow, giant rainbow mm -hmm. sidewalks mm -hmm. are, because um, this has like been the gay district since I can remember, right? And so it's strange to not see my community here mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. um, because it's more convenient for, you know, Amazon commute to live on Capitol because they can just walk down the hill, right? Yeah, yeah. But then that leads to like, there's been lots of accounts of like violence against queer people, and we're like, this has been our home for. Yeah, forever. and that's that's so very interesting too. That particular, it's clearly happening, mm -hmm. but at the yeah. same time, I'm I'm actually befuddled by it, right? Because <laughs> not be, not at the not at the human level. I mean, humans are assholes, right? Yeah. But but the, it's not in the nature of that white collar coastal elite mm -hmm. is generally not thought to be like necessarily homophobic or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, once gay people moved out because of displacement, the Amazon people moved in and then all of the like bros from the suburbs now party there. I've heard that theory. That's my theory. Yeah. I mean, is it's that, like all the bros are like, yeah, we're going to hang out on Capitol Hill. And I'm like, what? Why? Yeah. There are like so many other places in Seattle. Every other part of Seattle. Every other part of Seattle <laughs> for you to hang out in. Like, why do yeah. you need to hang out on Capitol Hill? Like, yeah. And not to mention, like, Belltown is so close, and that's, like, such a, like... Well, that's a night nightlife place. That's what it's built right. for. It's, that's like, loud noises. That's what it was designed for, yeah. right? Yeah. But you decided that you wanted to come up to Capitol Hill. Yeah. And then be an asshole. I mean, yeah, people, you're not going to stop people from going where they're going to go, but it's yeah. the asshole the asshole piece. Right. Like <laughs> so, yeah, just just reverting back. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you grew up here. You went, where'd you go for a school? I yeah. left uh, 2003 to get my bachelor's at Hampton University. Um, all right. in Virginia. Hampton, Virginia. Yeah, I spent some time down of there, Of all actually. fucking places. Like, I hate everything about Virginia. It's the worst. It's, <laughs> a, pr it's a pretty challenging place. I did some political work there. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty challenging environment to be yourself. It's hard. There's nowhere to walk around. You got to drive everywhere. Yeah. Right? There's no city. I mean, this, the city is D.C., Right. But that, the, but, you know. Yeah. And then if you're in Richmond, it's not a city. No. It's a neighborhood. It's, a, it's, a, it's <laughs> like a neighborhood of a real city. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird, weird place to be. And it, I was in like, that's like Southern Virginia. Mm -hmm. So it's like closer to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And like having to drive two and a half hours to get to D.C. was like a pain in the butt because I didn't have a car in college until like my senior year junior senior year and so yeah it was just a weird place to learn and be but mm -hmm. i was around tons of black people which was a new yeah. thing for me and that was really fun i wouldn't trade that experience for the world and also i would I, there's no reason for me to ever go back to virginia right right you got what you needed to do exactly. i was school in new jersey i feel the same way <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I mean that was fun for yeah. four years and I'm out. that was cool <laughs> it's funny you know i hear this from a lot of folks is you came up here you had you kind of went away mm -hmm. and you had you know your formative moment mm -hmm. and I think for you there's probably a lot of your social justice awakening kind of moment yeah. and now you're back here you're now today you're yeah. a decorated poet and you've done <laughs> your you've done your work you're an educator but when you first came back mm -hmm. how did you reconcile those two kind of the city you left that's changing rapidly alongside this new education you have yeah. uh, from Hampton I, I think when I moved back I like moved back against my will 
So <laughs> I wasn't even really thinking about how the city had changed. I was like just trying to figure out how to get through like the trauma of why I left Virginia. So, and was that a was it? I mean, was that an economic situation? No, or? the trauma of Virginia was like I was in like an abusive relationship, mm. and so I had to leave ultimately. Yeah, okay. um, that was an interesting situation, and I don't I don't know if abusive is the right word. It, it was just a I was in a cult, better word. Okay. Okay. Um, and that cult led to like like a, a religious situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it just. Yeah, it spun all the way out. How'd you get involved with that? Right, right. How do you get into a cult, <laughs> Imani? So, <laughs> I, my, my mom it has been Christian since I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted to be Christian. I didn't know if I wanted to, like, believe in, you know, white Jesus. Right. And so, I decided that I was going to think about it. And so, my mom, she was like, if you're going to, like, be a teenager, you have to go to church. And so she made us go to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And eventually I like, it wore me down and I was like, well, I guess I believe in God, right? I, I guess I believe in this. This is my thing. Right, I this guess. This is my, my tradition, my faith, my parents. Like, right, yeah, so yeah. I'm gonna adopt this tradition that my mom has. And so I I like got saved and then that's, so that was my whole undergrad career was mm-hmm. I was in church. So I just want to, for the listeners, she's, yeah. Monty's throwing huge finger quotes up, <laughs> rabbit ears with I got saved. So just to yes. create a... Wh- Contextualize <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. And so I I spent all of my undergrad as a like devout Christian who mm. like wasn't having premarital sex Whoa. and who was like super committed to this very Christian like lifestyle and I was going to get married and I was going to have kids and like... All this other stuff that came along with being Damn, Christian you know, and cis and het. Like, yeah, yeah. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> like, right! Like, we kick it. Like, this is out of the box for you. I don't even know what's happening right now. Right. Okay, so that's, I never knew that. I never knew that that part of your past. And yeah. it's so funny how many people have that past. Yeah. You come up in a tradition and that's just how you think about the world. Yeah, yeah. And so I... Uh, Eventually, once like the culminating event of like it all spiraling out happened, I I got I was started like on the in the on campus church right because every black university has an on campus church, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> I like met uh, my fiance who was a man, um, and uh, the reason why, for the listeners the reason why I'm saying was a man is because I currently don't date men. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but so it's like, it's just funny to think about you in that context right. of like, like yeah. Southern housewife context, right? Like totally interesting, totally Southern housewife. And then, um, so I joined this church because my fiance at the time was, uh, my boyfriend at the time was in this church and he was like, well, I really like this church, blah, blah, blah. So we started going to this church and then for the next three years of my life, I was in this church right? and I was like help tutoring the pastor's kid and like right, right. cleaning the pastor's house. Was this like a like, Pentecostal situation no, or like well, an evangelical? We went, it said, we went that we were like non-denominational, but it was very Pentecostal-esque. Yeah. Yeah. That's like an evangel, all purpose evangelical, yes, kind of really devout, like totally. conservative politics views and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, got you. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so I was in this church, and then it spun out, and I was like, oh, God, no, I'm going home. This is ridiculous. And so I came home, and I got into another cult, which was, like, another small, like, church situation, because I was like, I don't want to give up on Jesus just because, like, <laughs> these people are, like, 
not really i i can't yeah. um with meanwhile people. jesus right is up there going oh god imani right <laughs> meanwhile <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so I like, um, so I joined another like small, really small, like evangelical group and mm-hmm. that all spun out too. And I was like, fuck it, I'm done. And I like, at some point you realize it's not, yeah, it's not that this church was right. the it's, problem. It's, it's the doctrine. It's the religion itself yeah, that I think I was pushing right up against. And so at 22, I was just like, okay, I'm done. I, I'm like done. And I had like, started drinking for the first time at 22. I like started partying for the first time at 22 and I just like went ham. And I've always sort of been very attracted to women. And so it was unusual for me to be able to explore that without like being judged or like feeling like I'm going to hell. And so (laughs) um, I spent most of my 20s exploring like my sexuality and what it meant and yeah, how I wanted to show up in the world. It was the first time I got to self-elect who I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I, 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 you know, I know your poetry, I know your your work and that comes clear. Very, very, very crystal clear in your work, right? Yeah. That you're almost now hearing you tell that story, (laughs) right? I have this whole foundation to build when I hear how much your work is about um, the magic of self-discovery yeah, and the way that you connect the past and your past and your family's past and everything mm-hmm. into who you are right now. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you right now with like your work? I know that we've talked a little bit and you're kind of, maybe yeah. you think about next steps. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think right now I'm having a really hard time being called a poet. Mm-hmm. It's like when people are like, oh, yeah, that's Imani the poet. I like cringe a little bit. Mm. I'm like, oh. So I think my, I I had a different idea of what being a published poet would look like. Mm-hmm. What I had in my head doesn't match up with reality. And so I'm like, okay, I need to figure out another way to show up as an artist because this is not, this isn't what I want to do. Like mm-hmm. the two paths are like you become an educator or you like do the slam scene. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do either of those things. Mm-hmm. So I teach because it pays the bills right now. And also not my ideal. This is what I want to retire doing. I mm-hmm. think eventually I'll like go back and be like an old, like gray dashiki wearing professor at some <laughs> point. Right. But there are so many other things that I want to explore and be a part of. I don't want to be stuck in the educator bubble right. or the poet bubble for that matter. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm taking a poet break. What are you um, working on? I am working on curating things, experiences for people. That makes me really happy, especially curating experiences for black bodied people. Mm-hmm. Well, you just closed down a really interesting and well-reviewed show. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that was that the first of its kind for you in terms of... Um, that was the first of its kind for me, but the other two curators, three curators, I'm sorry, do that work. That's how they show up in the world. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that I like joined their sort of brilliance. And What clicked about it for you? I think for me, it was what clicked was like capturing black laughter. Okay. Um, it was the first time I had worked with sound equipment. So I was like, oh my God, what the fuck is this? But I figured it out and I was sitting at a table in the woods in like Chelan somewhere okay. or something like yeah. we were so far and it was all black women and we we're like sitting at the table and we're just like talking about life, talking about the future, talking about where we want to go, who we want to be and like capturing the like nuances of everyone's laughter and like the joy in the room. And this is like an oral recording. Yeah. Like a sonic yeah. recording. Yeah. So is there is there such thing as black laughter? I mean, distinctively, categorically uniquely Uh, black laughter i think so i think that there's a thing that happens when you have multiple black people in a room laughing together the sound like expands and there's so much like resonance and healing 
and community mm -hmm. in that space that, yeah, I think it's definitely unique to black community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I imagine that at some level, yeah. this is also about how rarely that is experienced in, in public art, whether it be cinema or yeah. TV or black stand-up is an American staple, but that is a black performer making everyone else laugh. Right. Yeah. Very, you know, sambo on stage. Yeah. And so it's it, the uniqueness of capturing authentic black laughter was really awesome. That's right. Okay. So you got anything coming up? Yeah. So also April 6th at Seattle Art Museum, they have a new exhibition called Figuring History. And so I have curated an all black show to go up in Sam's gallery. And the experience is called Kitchen Sessions. I've done it for three years now. Oh. I ask all the artists to go and experience the art that's on the wall. And then I ask them to create a piece in response. And so the audience goes up, views the art, comes back down, we do a show. There's a curated menu and a drink options um, that I create based on sort of the theme and the feeling of the exhibition. And so it's really sort of uh, an experience for everyone to like come and let's talk about art together. Let's talk about blackness in art space. Let's have a conversation. Let's eat good food. Let's be community together around the subject of art. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And that's um, just a you know real yeah. talk for some of my listeners. Is yeah. this a, a, is the intended audience largely black, largely African-American or is all all comers welcome? Or Yeah, I, I think I built this space so that black performers could get paid to experiment and play. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to reflect some sort of art that's already in existence so that the audience has context for why the piece is created. So I, all audience members, I've had a pretty, pretty diverse audience cool. so cool. far. So. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. Do I'll, it. I'll bring the show. Yeah. Um, so we okay. end every interview with a segment we call, if you care about, then you should. Fill in the blanks. Okay. If you care about black lives, you should say something. Uh, do something. I like to call it get off your ass. If you care about poems, you should write them. Okay. Double feature. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's hard writing poems. It is hard writing poems. Yeah. And that is, that is, that is true. Imani Sims, thank you so much for being of on my course. show. Of course. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been a blast. We'll talk soon. Yeah. That was Imani. She's great. Um, get ready for Israel. He's next, and the tone does shift a little bit. <laughs> you were on a date with your girlfriend's cousin today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. You, uh, you gotta keep the family happy. <laughs> That's the only way to do it. I'm here with Ben Israel, many talented man, to discuss his potential congressional run <laughs> against Pramila Jayapal. Well, tell me about this. You're gonna. Well, you know, so Pramila Jayapal had a once in a lifetime chance to have me as one of her policy aides earlier in 2016. And like Hillary Clinton, she missed the handwriting on the wall when it comes to what the progressive people wanted. <laughs> and so I went to the nonprofit field in Seattle, and she's been become probably one of the most mediocre Congress people elected. <laughs> so, the episode in which Ian loses his job, his friends, his contacts. <laughs> so I'm just going to, I'm gearing up for a run against her. And, right, who's uh, going to be your campaign manager? 
Ian Martinez. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know. I think I'd have to take a pay cut to do that. That's fine. Uh, that's cool. So, hey, you uh, you moved here a little bit later in life. You grew mm -hmm. up in Texas. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. I uh, grew up in Texas in Fort Worth, which is uh, North Texas. And here's the thing. A lot of times when I say I grew up in Fort Worth, people say, oh, Dallas. I'm like, no. <laughs> okay. Fort Worth. And it's almost kind of like the D.C. Baltimore thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, Fort Worth is actually larger than Seattle. It's the 16th largest city in the United States, but it is a kind of a, it has a laid back culture. Back in the 1970s, Eamon Carter and a lot of the, what you would call like art and cultural elites in Fort Worth didn't want to bring a lot of attention to the city. There's a lot of wealthy people in Fort Worth and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of important people in Texas politically and, and art-wise there, but they didn't want to be kind of in your face with it. They were more like the laid back mm. kind of people. There's a saying that you'll hear when you go to Texas, they say you can go to Dallas and meet a man in an Armani suit and he's broke and you go to Fort Worth and you meet a man in jeans and t-shirt and he's a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of mm -hmm. the, We've got money. We don't like to talk about All it. All right, cool. That's so the kind of atmosphere in Fort Worth. That's what Seattle pretends to be. Exactly. <laughs> that's what Seattle wishes it could be. One thing I can say positive about Fort Worth politics, it's it's not extremely conservative. It's one of those, it's not a purple city, mm -hmm. but you, I would say it's like 55% conservative, 45% mm -hmm, mm -hmm. progressive. But because it's so close, you really see Republicans and Democrats are moderate there. Mm -hmm. There's no alt-right, there's no r radical, radical left. It's yeah, pretty much it. everyone it work, learns how to work together. Of course they have disagreements, but it's it's definitely one of the best examples of uh, people working yeah. together. Yeah, and, and also I think when you take certain culture issues, I mean, guns and abortion really are not gonna be, yeah. Yeah. no one's fighting about those things at, at the Nine city Texas. level. I mean, yeah. at the yeah, city yeah, level. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So, I mean, it, it's really just run the city, get it done. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. And you had work, was it Ben Ray Lujan? Whose office did you work in? So I worked for Congressman Mark Vesey. Vesey, got you. Got and um, before that, I also worked for uh, Rick Noriega. He was the Democrat nominee for Democrat Party in Texas in 2008 and ran against John Cornyn. Okay. Listen, now that's a that that <laughs> that election is just another example of of Democrats missing the mark. So he was a great candidate. He's a veteran military guy, outstanding family person, a, a real American hero. But his campaign manager was a, so afraid of isolating independents that they decided that we shouldn't have a strong Latino outreach program, oh, no. which meant that we, even though field directors, which I was the North Texas field director and several field directors throughout the state, early in the campaign said we have to have literature in Spanish if we're gonna win. Mm -hmm. And he fought us the entire time and then two weeks before the campaign was over, he's like, I got you all Spanish lit. And we're like, yeah, it's- Thanks, thanks for that. It's yeah. two weeks left. Yeah, right. And so it's, you know, <coughs> it's one thing that, you know, we, we have our discussions about the Democrat party, but sometimes I feel like the Democrat party sometimes the problem is they're trying to lean too close to the center. And that's something that I don't see the, the Republican Party doing too much. Yeah. Like, well, it's interesting. So I don't even know if it's left, right, center. It, yeah. It, it, it's not even that. It's In fact, I see one of my counter criticisms of that is that sometimes you see folks on the far left, uh, but it's not that they're that left on policy, right? Yeah. They, they're they're not, you know, so progressive. It's that they're you're either pro kind of status quo or you're anti-status quo. Yeah. And sometimes the status quo has a good stuff to offer. Yeah. And sometimes the status quo 
is a flaming pile of dog shit. Yeah. Right. And and what I see is a lot of folks who are, you know, I'll call them I'll yeah. call them the Bernie folks or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, really Bernie and Hillary, their positions on, let's a like that, I mean Hillary was to the left of Bernie on guns. Yeah. You know, on on trade on Israel. You know, on, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. But but what you get is. Um, it's that Bernie was the anti-establishment politician, right? Yeah. So coming back to your thing, I think it sounds like he was so, which this was Noriega, right? Rick and, Noriega. and it wasn't Noriega, it was his, his campaign, campaign manager. manager. Uh -huh. Was so afraid of upending the establishment, exactly. right? That he, it was not a left-right issue really, yeah. but yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, and so all joking aside, you know, we opened up talking about, but you came here and you uh, took a, a role if I'm not, you know, keep me honest here, but it was a ethnic outreach on the Jayapal campaign. So do you have you know, a little more, you know, what, so, what's your story? So there? I only worked for, for Miller for one week. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the job that I was to have was doing outreach. And basically the plan seemed pretty cool. So basically Jayapal's campaign divided the district or the potential district up into six sections. Mm -hmm. And was going to have a field director for each person doing outreach during the campaign. When I originally interviewed for that job, I simply, you know, asked what the requirements were as far as time. And the guy who was the field director, uh, who told me, he said, "Hey, I don't care. I'm not a micromanager as long as you get the job done." Uh, but it, it later happened that, you know, when I told him I couldn't work on Saturdays because I keep the Sabbath, not not that person, but the actual campaign manager said that they decided that that wasn't going to fit with their. Plan. They didn't think that would work out and, and let me go. So it wasn't actually the guy who hired me mm -hmm. that made that decision. It was the actual campaign manager. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you were not able to keep your job I, with that. I, I was not able. But you know, you know, I, I have been blessed. I've been. I was able to pick up some jobs doing consulting in the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector. And so right now, I have two organizations that I consistently do work for. Mm -hmm. And then and that's Center for Multicultural Health and Healthy King County Coalition. So Center for Multicultural Health is an organization started back in the 1970s, and they service the African-American community as well as the African and Asian immigrant communities, mm -hmm. uh, doing everything from educating women on child mortality, uh, doing HIV testing for queer black men, educating youth on tobacco and marijuana, and well, and so that's interesting, yeah. I, and we've talked a little bit about this off offline. But uh, right now, there's some pernicious legislation that's, uh, you know, yeah. You could argue that it's targeting, uh, you know, youth of color. So tell so, me a little bit about so that. So you're talking about Tobacco 21. Right? Yeah. So Tobacco 21 actually just got passed in the House. Mm -hmm. I be believe that's Bill 1054 in the state legislature. So what it's doing is it's raising the age of purchasing tobacco in the state of Washington to 21. There were some equity concerns in the community and, and, and some of the concerns really stem from funding. And what I mean by that is a lot of people in, in, in marginalized communities question, okay, if we raise this age to 21, right, then that means that there's gonna be people who are 18, 19, and 20 who it's legal for them to smoke now, right? And suddenly they're not gonna be able to use tobacco products. And, and you know, some people use tobacco casually, but there's other people that do have addictions to tobacco. And so the question is, if you're gonna pass a law that says, you know, you have to be 21 to purchase uh, cigarettes, but you're not gonna provide additional funding mm -hmm. for cessation programs and to help people get off of tobacco, 
then who is this going to impact most? And there's some, some enforcement issues too, right? There were. At this point, though, I believe that the, uh, there aren't going to be any additional penalties for people who are 18, 19, and 20. So the issue, the, the, the debate is with the Liquor and Cannabis Board and should they have the right to be detaining youth for suspicion of, of tobacco, but most specifically, there's some issues with whether or not they're the right agency to do it simply because they don't really have the de-escalation training that police officers have. And mm -hmm. we already know that there's been problems with, with police. With police. Yeah, right. So, you know, the Liquor and Cannabis Board is not a group that typically interacts. Mm -hmm. And so just imagine how, you know, a Liquor and Cannabis Board approaching a 17-year-old African-American or Latinx person because they think that they might be underage and might have tobacco. And call me a conservative, but yeah, for fuck's sake, like it's smoking. Yeah. I, I, smoking is gross, but yeah, you're gonna arrest someone for smoking. It's right? it's it's a well, it's not necessarily arresting because I don't think there was a any criminal uh, punishment, but there there were civil like civil infractions. Yeah. But the point is, this is giving probable cause mm -hmm. to stop someone. Mm -hmm. So you know. What if that person does actually have something else on them, but the reason given to stop them was I suspect that this person who, you know, was really 21 of being 19 and having a cigarette. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was just a concern that we don't want to give law enforcement another go ahead <laughs> another to, night, to yeah. stop people of color <clears throat> or, or people from marginalized communities. Gotcha. Makes sense. Have you seen Hamilton yet? I have seen Hamilton. It's great. <laughs> it's the best. Hamilton is for art elites what Black Panther is for the black community. <laughs> oh my I'm God. I'm just joking. No, but you're not wrong. But I'm right. All right. So here's my question Why does white America love a man who says, I shouldn't brag, but dag, I amaze and astonish, astonish right? Mm -hmm. uh, someone who, who, who brags about how many ladies he can slay, right? All this stuff. Says I'm not throwing away my shot, all that stuff. Yeah. But hates Kanye West. It's the same thing. Oh, because Hamilton, well, there's two things, right? Hamil Hamilton was white, that's one. <laughs> but also, but let's go to another point. Hamilton is dead. And so, we can even look at Muhammad Ali, and I actually did, We've did, talked about did this. an yeah. article about yeah, that when did. Muhammad Ali that's died, right. right? So, you know, it's easy for people to say, oh, I love Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is dead, and so he, or you know, or most of our lives, Muhammad Ali was just this old guy that used to be the champion of the world. Right. So it's easy to love him because he's he's an icon at this point. Yeah. Um, he's got no more rough edges. Yeah, he's yeah. got no, he, he's got no more rough edges, and he's not in your face. He, I don't even think it's necessarily the color thing with Kanye. I think it's the youngness and the brashness, and most people are taught that it's not polite to talk about how good you are. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, and I think in Hamilton's day, he probably dealt with that same. Well, that's why they hated of, him, right? Yeah, yeah they, right? they hated him because <laughs> hated he was him. so cocky. Yeah. He, literally, Alexander Hamilton was the Kanye West of politics, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you really think about it. My beautiful, dark, twisted democracy. <laughs> exactly. No, my beautiful, dark, twisted treasury. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's really what it is. So, um, what do you got coming up? I'm actually, so, you know, we both kind of work in the, the spoken word community here, too. And so I'm working on some projects right now, um, trying to do, like, a short film featuring spoken word. And 
So I have a concern with slam poetry, and that is I feel like it, it gives a platform to a lot of people in art, but I also feel like it limits us in this in this one format because a lot of people get involved in slam and they think the only thing I can do is a three minute poem. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we and we limit ourselves about identity politics, <laughs> right? Right. And and that's something I say too. You know, like I think it's important that people of color have their voice out there. I think it's important that that women have their voice and, and speak to these issues. I think it's important that all marginalized people be able to express these things. But I do think it's also important that we go beyond what's expected. I'll give you an example. There was a time, it wasn't here in Seattle, it was in Texas. I had like a kufi on, right? And it was cold, it was winter, so I had on a leather jacket. So, you know, when I walk up to stage, I could hear people in the crowd like, oh, this brother's about to do something revolutionary because they thought, you know, I've got on a black leather jacket and a, you know, a kufi, uh, which if you don't know what that is, I mean, it's something that you might see people in East African or Muslim communities wearing on their head, you know what I'm saying? And so, like, I got up and did a love poem and people, there were some people who were visibly disappointed mm-hmm. that I didn't do like a black power yeah, poem. Right. And I definitely, you know, in my poetry, I do do poems about politics, but I also think that we, we can do poems about everything, that we shouldn't typecast each other and expect, oh, that's the, you know, that's the Latino poet. He's going right. to do something about Cesar Chavez. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you can also do a poem about a flower if you want. Right, you right. Know? And should, because yeah. that's the experience that we all have. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and why limit yourself? That's interesting. And you have uh, the Grand Slam coming up, April 25th. April 25th. You'll be competing for the, the city championship. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting bec- because those competitions are so big. You know, usually the slams are, you know, more intimate, like 50 to 70 people mm-hmm. max. And yeah. you can, right, and you can, like, make those personal <clears throat> connections mm-hmm. with people in the audience. You can look at, look at them in the eye when you're performing. Mm-hmm. And then you get in this room where it's, like, 250 people. And and it doesn't make me nervous, but it definitely changes the performance dy- dynamic because I can't, I don't feel like I can speak to this and forgetting. If you play sports ever, if you if you ran track or played volleyball or football or basketball, anybody will tell you, right, there's a period in time where like you're so into the game that you can't hear the crowd, yep. you can't hear the coach, you're just zoned in on doing what you got to do. And I would think that kind of focus to the craft is important. And I also think, you know, people, I, I, I think poets don't get the credit they deserve because everybody thinks they can do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, if you hear a great guitarist, right, you can't go out and you don't, and you've never played the guitar, you can't get up the next Wednesday and fake your way through a guitar song. Right. But you can fake your way through. Oh, yeah. A, you know, every open mic in every city it, in America exactly. has exactly. 20 people. And they might say, what's interesting is that they might say some things that resonate with the ideology of the crowd, so they'll get their exactly. applause, but but you just know a good poet from a bad one. Exactly. You know? and, that, and that is the blessing and the curse of slam poetry, too, because on one end, you're giving voice to all these people that don't necessarily get a voice. Mm-hmm. Then there's the flip side because you're, you're you're judging art. You know, a 30-year-old telling a 15-year-old with the courage to get in front of 70 people that they don't know that yeah. your yeah. poem is a five <laughs> is not the most important. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's the kind of maybe, maybe it's the best thing in the world. You got to learn somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, it, again, no, I know what you're saying. But I know yeah, exactly it's just like it, you know, we're, uh-huh. 
on one end you do want to like reward excellence on the other end you don't want to like discourage <laughs> you know someone to think that they you know they can't do this so that's kind of the other conundrum that slam creates that we you know someone gets up and does a point about their mom dying of cancer and they're like that's great 5.3 <laughs> but the but that's so funny that you say that because the flip you're right but the flip side of that is Somebody goes up and does a whack-ass poem about their mom dying of cancer, and yeah. everyone's like, heartstrings get pulled, and they get 9.9. Yeah. Right? It's like, you, you and never and know. they do that cancer form every, every time. Every damn time. It's like, and you never know. Like, you, you know, yeah. it's such a, it, judging art is such a weird thing. And so that's the other thing, right? And then that comes to, like, Slam is so unique. I haven't figured it out yet in the sense of, you know, I've figured out, you know, how to win a Slam, but I haven't really figured out our community because... Our community is, I would say, super leftist, and I'm not, I'm not saying I have a problem with that, but I wonder, like, is there another art community where it's so led by the politics? Say, for example, if you're a great painter, you're a great painter, right? I don't know how much we delve into, like, yeah. did you vote for Pat Buchanan? Like, I really like that painting. But that's this is how far <laughs> left we are as a community. We're, it's not even about who you voted for. Yeah. I mean, ex with one exception, the, yeah. the, the, Obviously, the poet who ran for mayor last yeah, year. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. other than that, it's yeah. th there's no one ever says like, oh, you voted for this person, because it's so far to the left. It's not even like, yeah. it's more it's more like if you have these opinions that are like liberal versus merely radical. radical yeah. Right? Like so, like you've got the Hillary versus the Bernie Sanders people versus like I'm a socialist people. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, or even more, right? I mean, a lot of our friends probably thought Bernie was too establishment, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no, exactly. And, and and it's yeah, and so and that leads the art because you're absolutely right. We're we're such a vocal. I mean, we yeah. are by definition we're poets, right? I mean, when's the last time you heard a, a conservative poet in our community? In, 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 in spoken word, yeah. nev never. Yeah, I've like, never. There's heard. no like Republican Saul Williams. Right. <laughs> and I'm not even saying doing like poems about like you know that are like hateful or anything like that, but like. A, a poems about like family values, like father stays yeah. in your kids' lives. Which is, I mean, it is what it is. but yeah. it's it's you're right, and and there really is no other form that I can think of where the the ideological kind of purity test is so high. Exactly. We like to end every show with a segment we call "If you care about, then you should mm -hmm. fill in the blanks." Hmm. If you care about pizza, you should add pineapples. <laughs> Get off my show! Get off my show! Oh my God! No, you know what? I was just watching Ghostbusters, yeah. and I saw the hugest logical fallacy I've ever seen in a movie. What's that? Two people who are supposed to be New Yorkers, yeah. Dan Aykroyd and uh, Harold Zemeckis, right? Yeah. They're Chicago comedians, though. Yeah. And they were like, oh, Mexican? No, let's get Thai. No, let's get pizza. Okay, as long as it's Chicago-style. No self-respecting New Yorker would ever eat Chicago-style pizza. Yeah, that was definitely an inside job right that was, there. That was some 9-11-level shit. Well, anyway... <laughs> Ben Israel, thank you so much. Check uh, check him out at on the 25th. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you. All right. Okay, that was Israel, guys. Check him out on the 25th, and uh, stay tuned for Chelsea Brown. Uh, once again, a tonal shift. She's doing some really cool shit. You know, I still haven't learned. I work in Seattle, right? And I go to school here. And I still haven't learned like when you should just just give up and just Uber. 
You know what I mean? I don't think you Uber from Kirkland. That's not a sustainable But I mean, or just, you know, I could learn to use the bus proficiently. You could. Actually, that'd probably be good for everybody. I should, but with kids, it's a little bit, it's a little bit trickier. So, you know, because I have to, I really just don't give myself enough time to get places. That's really what it is. Who does it? Who does that? Me. No, I mean, who who gives themselves enough time? I, don't, I think that most adults I, do. I don't know about that. I think actually that one person who does that mm-hmm. is the person that we all kind of make fun of behind their back. Oh, okay. I don't think most adults are giving themselves enough time to really do anything. This will this is a revelation that will do a lot for my self esteem now yeah. in adulthood because I just thought I was like always. Like, that's what we do on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is we, great. We help the guests have good self esteem. Yeah, that's great. I'm down for that. So you're in Kirkland now. Uh-huh. But you grew up in Bellingham area, right? I grew up I grew up about 25 minutes north of Bellingham. Okay. Oh, so you grew up basically in Canada. I I grew up in the the most northwest corner of Washington state. Okay. What's the name of that town? It's called Blaine, Blaine. but I grew up in um sort of a a neighborhood of Blaine that's Birch Bay. We just don't have our our, our own postal code or or school. Right. Um <laughs> or roads. Or well, we have roads, but it's like all <laughs> retired people. It's and an you but you and you somehow and me. You well, were, there are were, a lot of kids, too. Oh, there are a lot of kids. families, but yeah, it's a really interesting mix. It's, like, so very rural. Generally speaking, people who eat soft foods and don't have sex. Well, there's a lot of... Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Or, or there's a lot of sex. I don't or know. Or there's what... a lot of sex. I don't really know who's having the sex. Um, <laughs> okay. There are a lot of snowbirds. You know, okay. those, those people that um, they, they live somewhere, like, here, in an affordable part of Washington. Right. And then they drive, like, a motor home down to Arizona for part of the year. Oh, sex so for those the people, winter part. The people yeah. that have, like, pensions. Right. That we will never have. Right. Yeah. I lived there until I was like 18 years old. And then I, and then I moved to Bellingham, which felt like a big city. <laughs> okay. You're moving on up in the uh-huh. world. And I loved Bellingham. It was like my big city for a long time. And then right. I got too small. So I moved here. Okay. Yeah. But before you moved here, mm-hmm. which is really Kirkland. Mm-hmm. Let's well, just be honest. It's really Kirkland. I'm going to snob out on yeah, you. Yeah. Snob out yeah. on me. That's yeah, fine. It's a Seattle boy. So you're not only is your family in Kirkland, but you very rapidly have a family. I mean, you mm-hmm. were, you were what, third, three kids by 25, right? Yep, absolutely. And that all happened in Kirkland, I mean, in, uh, in, in Bellingham. In Bellingham. In Bellingham, in Whatcom County. Talk, walk me through your family situation. So I have, I have three boys. Um, okay. They are nine, six, and four. And your oldest, you must have been 17. I was 17. 17. Yeah, yeah I found out, I was pregnant uh, senior year of my, of high school. Okay. Walk me through that. What was that like? Um, I was um, I was planning to go to film school. Okay. Um, I had all these lofty, you know, dreams of like a girl that grows, grows up in a small town and can't handle it anymore and just wants to go create things and change the world. A little dancing in, well, in the first feature film, I think. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And, um, and then I um, found out I was pregnant um, when I was, it was spring break of my senior year of high school. Okay. And I had been with his dad for just a little while. Um, but I was experiencing some... Um, disenfranchisement from my family and whatnot like I wasn't I wasn't the best kid I mean if you want to put like air quotes around it I wasn't like super <clears throat> I wasn't super poised for success so it felt like what do you mean by that but poised for success you know I came from a family with some substance abuse issues and some domestic violence and whatnot and I just sort of I was in a situation where I didn't have a good handle on um, what healthy relationships look like I think f- for a lot of young people especially when they find out they're pregnant and, and they're very young it seems like um, like a way to like an out like a this is the way out yeah, i'm gonna do out. this right mm-hmm. okay i'm gonna do this right i, I mean you i we're friends outside mm-hmm. of the pod yeah. uh, which is not the case i mean i meet people for the first time sitting here yeah. sometimes but but i've known you for a while um you seem like you're pretty jazzed to be a mom you're mm-hmm. nine years in right so absolutely. It's, it's going yeah. pretty well so maybe there's some truth to that oh absolutely but at the same time you're probably setting yourself up for some real challenges oh yeah absolutely right like couldn't go away to school uh-huh right? yeah it couldn't it took me a long i started <laughs> It is. I haven't even finished community college yet, and I, I've I've dropped out of community college. I don't know, 
four times. Right. Well, you just went straight for the youth advocacy route, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm, at this point, sort You got the life creds, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you kind of get life creds. Um, there are a lot of little obstacles, but I think it, um, it... One great thing that it did was it it gave me something to, like, kind of a productive cause to rally around um, in, in terms of parenting. Like, it just really wanted to be for him who I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Kind of, mm-hmm. um, and and I think without knowing anything else about myself, I've outgrown so many things through the years, and the only thing I haven't outgrown has been motherhood. Mm-hmm. Well, I that, think that's fortunate for them. I mm-hmm. mean, so you're, but you're three though. Yeah, and they're adorable. Walk me through a day. What is a day like with three kids? You know, <laughs> the last couple of years I've been in this really interesting. For until my youngest was about two, I was a stay-at-home mom, and I was in a situation where, you know, I had a um, I had a husband that, that went to work, and then I was just expected to just really run the household, kind of be his personal assistant, take care of my kids, and, and whatnot. And I th- I liked that. You know, there are certain things about that, that I really liked. When I decided to leave my marriage, I sort of had to take on this world of also being a 20-something-year-old woman trying to take on life, all the things outside of parenting. Right. And that has been chaotic Uh and really rewarding and interesting. But, uh, you know, I get up in the morning. I take my kids to school. Up until recently, um, I usually am on shift at at a shelter working with youth until about 6, 7 in the morning. And then I... And I come in and take my kids to school. I have my four-year-old all, all day, so I'm kind of juggling things like school and, and work in between. When do you sleep? That's funny. Um, <laughs> no, but when do you sleep? I don't sleep a lot. You know, that's one thing that has been lacking in the last few years is there's not a lot of time to sleep because you always feel like you need to be doing other things. Recently, I've given myself a little bit of time off and I have been sleeping, but there's not. There's not a lot of time for sleep. Okay. There's just okay. not. Um, because, you, you know, you have yourself and you can imagine that um, you're doing all your own things. You're putting a lot of energy and time into your career, right? And then also I have like an education handle. I also, you know, there's also poetry, right? right? Which is a really important part of my self-care too. So I right. try not to let that fall. Well, yes. Yeah, so- you're a poet you've actually been I I see poets who are established here in the Seattle area I think of like Tara Hardy's and stuff Mm -hmm. they're constantly talking about your work they're constantly complimenting your work so you're this new upstart who's taking everyone by storm you're also working in youth advocacy and youth care you're also uh, raising three kids Mm -hmm. this leads to the when do you sleep question, right? Mm-hmm. You're also engaged and married, right? Mm-hmm. High yes. five. Thank High you. five. We're both engaged. Yes, absolutely. We're both marrying up. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, Hillary's very lucky, too. You're you're not stopping. You're not taking a break. What, where is this going for you? Mm. You know, I don't really know yet. I don't know. Well, maybe you're taking some time to figure that out. Maybe I am. That's that. kind of where I'm at, you know, yeah. and, and I get asked that a lot. And, and people in my life and then people that I work with, like, where is this going? Like, what do you think you're, you're going to be doing? And I, I don't really know. I'm kind of in that, that period of figuring things out. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, like, I, I know who I am, like, as a parent. I know that's a priority that I've always had. And that's there, you know. Right. And I do that every day. And it's, like, not even something. That's just sort of baseline default at this it's point. It's my baseline, right? yeah. And I'm trying to find out who I am sort of outside of that, too. It's going okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tell me about youth care. We serve um, youth experiencing homelessness from the ages of like, when I say youth, I mean like adolescents. So we have programs for 12 to 18 year olds and 18 to 24 year olds. Okay. There are like seven, at least 17 housing programs total. Then there is a, um, there's uh, education and employment programs and a couple of walk-in places to get services there's one the orion center downtown is one Mm -hmm. of them you know that green building and what's the service one we we have an overnight shelter that can connect youth with that orion specifically is like 18 to 24 they can get um, a hot meal a safe place to sleep that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and case management services Mm -hmm. and connected with some of the other um like programs that that we work with i mean one of the things that i hear Mm -hmm. about 
um, some of our services is that mm-hmm. they're so tightly prescribed. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a need that's any bit outside of the straight and narrow set of things that the city is allowed to provide, they can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, certain shelters maybe aren't co-ed or wh- whatever it yeah. is, right? So what are the what are the challenges you guys are facing right now? Right now, um, specifically, I have I, most of the work that I've done is in a, a newer um, shelter for 12 to 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. It's called the Hope Center. We're supposed to be what we are our our, um, our main kind of forte is that we're a low barrier transitional program for for kids that are 12 to 18 years old and we're supposed to be getting them into more permanent housing Mm -hmm. those kids we're we are trauma-informed so a lot of the kids we work with are kids that historically like they get kicked out of other places for uh, behavior issues or just you know not they just blow through placements and Something that I've seen a lot. What's is a placement for for everybody? Um, a placement is is a house, a place to live. Like maybe they can't be with family, maybe they're a foster kid, um, but they aren't able to stay in. Say maybe they need a medical placement or a bed at a psychiatric psychiatric care facility. They won't stay there. Maybe they um, go to some other shelter and and they a placement at a shelter is a bed for them basically. Mm-hmm. The state pays for it mm-hmm. individually. Okay, okay, I see. So um, so they're just bl- I mean they just can't. They can't stick. A lot of them can't stick, yeah. And so our low barrier model is, and we have other um, shelters within youth care for, for kids in that age group, but our low barrier model and is really just for those kids that maybe maybe they aren't always able to be polite. Um, maybe they have substance, like chemical dependency issues. Some of them are commercially sexually exploited kids. Wow, okay. Yeah, they're just, they're the harder to, so- to serve population. One of the, you're right, the, the, the tightly prescribed services thing is, is a huge barrier because we, we get them for 30 days and that's kind of what our funding allows. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we are stabilizing them for another placement. And the problem is there's not a lot of places for them to go. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of therapeutic foster homes available. That That's just a thing. Like, we're always a shortage for that type of thing. There aren't even a lot of shelter beds for kids that are under 18, between like, in that age group, um, where they can stay longer than 30 days. Maybe, th- meaning independent from their parents or... Or unable parents aren't to be home. Or yeah. unable to be home or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? Got it. Is this changing as the city changes? I know the city, just in our, our last mm-hmm. episode, we were talking about how, it, you know, density is good. Mm-hmm. It, it, You know, there's many arguments made for the fact that the change in Seattle have a good side to them, Mm -hmm. but they are certainly pushing folks with lower income. And that doesn't even just mean outright poor, Mm -hmm. even lower middle class out into the fringes, right? Out to Renton and out to Kirkland Mm -hmm. and beyond Kirkland. Mm -hmm. I imagine if you're in this type of of a scenario, there must be an impact as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I started this job, I really just, I wanted to work with youth that were impacted by homelessness because I was at one point. And I've realized it's so much a canary in a coal mine for, for so many other issues. It absolutely has changed with, um, because most of the most of the reasons for homelessness are not because a kid is a bad kid and it's not as simple as there not being a place for them. It, it's it's their family. It's it's whatever's going on with, with where they come from. We do see, it's not necessarily just a citywide problem either. In my shelter specifically, like there tends to be, you know, there are a lot of kids from other places in the state because there aren't a lot of shelters everywhere mm-hmm. you know this isn't something that necessarily is plentiful in like Kitsap County or anywhere that, that isn't uh, isn't an urban area Got so it. some of these kids are, are city kids and some of them are are from all over they just don't have a place there's they not a bed a social worker can bring them and what is that word of mouth I mean they just hear this is a place where I can go does it I mean what, how does that happen oh you know all the services are sort of con- all the systems are kind of connected so I you see. know like uh, anyone in, in child protective services they might have a rundown of different shelters to go to bring any other kids to there's you might see stickers all around I know I see them around Seattle all the time they're um it's called safe place they're like a green and, and white sort of sticker mm-hmm. that's a program that is any youth can go there and and say that they need a safe place to a staff member and they will call 
a designated service that comes with transportation to bring them to a shelter like ours maybe or help them self-refer into any kind of shelter and what's the worst case like what, what are what are you trying at all costs to kind of avoid when someone checks in mm. then blowing through the placement i think it can be really, really hard, especially to see a street-involved youth leave um, because you know kind of what they're leaving for. What does that mean? Um, some drugs and uh, being sexually exploited is a huge concern. Okay. That's really big. And it looks different than, I think, all of us. We kind of think of the boogeyman or, or um, we think of, <laughs> like, situations where they're being kidnapped in, in a black van and all of these things. Yeah. And, and that's really not what it looks like. It looks like a teenage girl um, sleeping with, you know, maybe a 40-year-old man for a place to, to sleep at night, you know, mm -hmm. that, that type of thing, mm -hmm. you know, trading sex for basic needs of survival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we don't want to see. Right. What, what services are available for that teenage girl uh, to kind of reroute? Yeah, yeah. We have, um, so our shelter, it, it's it's kind of great. We're just sort of the housing piece, and we plug into a, a larger network. Um, there are, um, there's a, a program that is like a wraparound program that, that involves, like someone coordinates a team for each kid that can buy in, you mm -hmm. know, that we can really get to agree to this sort right. of situation. Psychological, mm -hmm. legal, yep, economic. You got it. Yeah. You know, the, the there are legal ser services. There right. are, you know, a therapist. Job. Yeah. All yep. that kind of thing. Got it. So there's that. It's our job is really like we really want to stabilize them enough to buy into that and to and to get them connected with those right. services. Maslow's. Maslow's uh -huh. needs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That is absolutely what it is. Yeah. And it's food services too? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. We feed them. Okay. Wow. It's like a house. So you got anything going on? Yeah. Um, April 25th, I'm going to be competing in the, um, the Brain City uh, Grand Slam at Hales Palladium. Spoken oh. word poet. Yeah, I'm a spoken This is word like poet. the big championship, right? It's like the big champion. It's like okay. the Super Bowl. Okay, the Super Bowl. Well, of not Seattle really. It's like what is the sports ball the game before the Super Bowl? It's the, oh, this is the uh, like the Puppy Bowl. It's like the, <laughs> <laughs> the Puppy Bowl is during the Super Bowl. <laughs> okay, fair yeah. enough. So this is uh, great. So that's uh, Wednesday, the t April twenty fifth, and uh, we always like to end our shows with a segment we call "If you care about, you should mm -hmm. fill in the blanks." Mm, if you care about youth homelessness, you should donate to youth care. You should donate your services or your time or your dollars. We'll get on it right now. I'll throw it up on the, on the website. Perfect. For, for the crowd. Perfect. Chelsea Brown, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, talk soon. Yeah. Thanks to the inimitable Imani Sims, the irascible Ben Israel, and the inspiring Chelsea Brown. Check them out at the Rain City Poetry Grand Slam, April 25th at Hales Ales Palladium. This week's sponsor was Horizon Books, and yes, there were live musicians playing 10 feet from us. All music by the Subcons. Dope opening poem sample by Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Rod, Dave, Abigail, and Kamira for the vocals, and thanks to our sound engineers Brandon and Naboo. I'm your host, Ian Martinez, and this has been Upzones, a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week.